Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Risha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Bernadette Melnick, goes by Bern, Dean of the College of Nursing at Ohio State University. Since arriving at Ohio State in 2011, Byrne has overseen the nursing program, and in 2015, Ohio State's master's program in nursing was named among the nation's top 25 by U.S. News & World Report, putting it among the top 5% of nursing programs nationwide. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's good to be with you, and Rishi, I'd like to add that I actually have a joint position at Ohio State I'm also the university's first chief wellness officer. So I spearhead population health and well-being across the university for faculty, staff, and students. That's awesome. And, and maybe that's a good place for us to start because I don't think a lot of folks are familiar with what a wellness officer does. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your background and what got you interested in healthcare and wellness in the first place? You bet. I left sunny Arizona nine years ago to come to Columbus, Ohio. And actually, the way it happened was I was dean at Arizona State University when Buckeye Nation called me and said, Burn. We see how you've exploded your college in Arizona. We want you to come to Columbus and do the same thing here. And I said, I'm humbled you thought of me, but I have no intentions of making a lateral move. But I have been studying corporate wellness for about three years and I was flummoxed at the fact that corporations saw the value of employee wellness. But when I went to search for chief wellness officers at an academic institution in the country, I couldn't find any. So I threw my dream out there and I said, I'm humbled you thought of me, not interested in making a lateral move, but if there were an opportunity to combine the dean's job with the university-wide leadership role as a chief wellness officer, I might come and talk with you all. And it just so happened our former president, Dr. Gordon Gee, called me the next day to say, Bern Melnick, what's all this hype about a chief wellness officer? And what would you do for Ohio State if we were to create this pioneering position? That's how it all happened. So now there's many universities throughout the country and academic medical centers who are appointing CWOs with the goal to improve population health and well-being. 
Wait, but you didn't tell me the critical part of that story. Because on a phone call, you know, you have not a lot of time. And I'm not sure how much background he had at the time about what a wellness officer can do. But, like, how did you make it clear that this would align with the university's missions? And, like, how does it align? Does it save money? Does it help with marketing? Like, what sort of alignment do you find is most resonant when you're trying to pitch the need for wellness? That's an excellent question, because I have a philosophy in God we trust, but everybody else better bring data to the table. And I live by that philosophy, and I made the argument with the evidence. So I shared return on investment data. We have so much research to show. If faculty and staff, any employees, if they're happy, healthy, and engaged, they're more productive. There's less turnover. There's less absenteeism, presenteeism. We've got to switch that paradigm to one of wellness and prevention. So I just give a lot of data and I have great evidence to support this particular role. So given what you just said about evidence, one thing that was always striking me is there sometimes is like a mountain of evidence over here, and then you walk over here and you see how people actually do things in the real world, and you're like, wait, they're not doing any of the things that we have evidence for. Knowing all the evidence that you're talking about, and knowing that my mind is very concrete, like I just like to see examples, what would be one example if you were to walk over to the mountain of evidence, pluck out one thing, walk over to the the place where people are doing things. And if you could wave a magic wand and get them to just do the thing that you think they should do, what would it be? What would be that intervention that like everybody knows works and gosh, you know, gosh darn it, why don't we just do it? Yeah. I focus on healthy lifestyle behaviors because again, we've got a ton of evidence that 80% of chronic disease can be totally prevented If I could just get everybody across the nation to engage in 30 minutes of physical activity every day and people think you're crazy, Vern, I could never do that. I said, yes, you can. You can cut your Zoom meetings down from 60 minutes to 50 and take some micro recovery breaks during the day and boom, you hit it. I tell people at least five fruits and veggies a day, don't smoke. And if you don't drink alcohol, don't start. But if you do, limit it to one drink a day. And then Rishi, everybody asks me, Burn, how big can that drink be? And I tell everybody, not the size of the alcoholic beverages we get in Vegas. So... You know, the problem, the character builder, I should say, about behavior change is most people don't make change unless crisis happens or their emotions are raised. So I always say the magic formula to get people to change is evidence plus emotional story. Those two in combination get people really contemplating and motivated for change. 
given what you just said about a Zoom meeting, I, I obviously would have to cut this short. And so I'm going to go, <laughs> you know, I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And with behavior change, it's, it's hard to change people's behaviors. In fact, that's probably the hardest thing to do. Have you found maybe in your own life or with friends and family, is there anything that is advice that feels like it's not in the mainstream? Like, is there any sort of non-intuitive thing that has been really quite helpful for you or your friends and family that, that you'd love for more people to kind of adopt or learn about as a way to change behavior? I'm just curious if you have any, any tricks or tips to doing the things that are maybe so obvious but hard for people to do. Visual triggers, like the background that I have on my background on Zoom today, like take your dose of vitamin G every day, putting visual triggers at key places can really help people with that change. Most people fall off the wagon after a week You know, so many people set a January 1 New Year's resolution, and by January 30th, most people fall off the wagon. And I think what's key that I tell everybody to do, you got to write down your goal, not make it so big that you fall off the wagon quickly, but you put that goal where you can see it, where you brush your teeth every day, where you go to sleep to make sure you meet it. And if you fall off the wagon, it's okay. Get back on the next day and ride it again. Wait, Bern, did I hear you correctly? I also have to now brush my teeth daily. Is that like another? <laughs> yeah. The list is growing, Bern. Like I, I, I got to say, <laughs> I didn't expect it to be this long. You know, one thing that folks can't see, but I'm just going to read it out, is in your background, it says, take your vitamin G or gratitude today. And um, there's a lot of evidence, we were talking about this briefly, about the value of that. One thing that I found helpful in my own life is there are many things that I will not do if I think it's going to help my health because I'm just lazy. But I will do them if I think it's going to help my kid. When I have a four-year-old son, I'm motivated by that much, much more than I'm motivated for myself. And so I had learned about this. And so I started this practice where before bedtime, he has to tell me something he's grateful for. And of course, like most games or activities, you reciprocate. And so now I've gotten into the practice of it. And that kind of like reverse engineered me being healthier. I'm curious if you find that to be effective with parents specifically. Do you find that parents will do things if you convince them that it's a good thing for their kid? And then all of a sudden now, you know, as role models, they kind of have to do it too. Is that a strategy you've seen work? Absolutely. It works for pets too. Oh, So people will often walk their dogs if they know it's going to help their dog's health and experience the benefits. So you're right on. Rishi, my mother, stroked out and died in front of me with a sneeze when I was 15 years of age. You can imagine how traumatic that would be for a teenager, really for anybody, let alone a teenager or a child. What was sad about my mom's story, she had a history of headaches for over a year. And my dad kept saying, please go to the doc, figure out what's wrong. She visited her family physician one week before she died, diagnosed with high blood pressure, given a prescription 
for a blood pressure medication that my dad found in her purse after she died. Oh, wow. So, you know, I suffered from terrible post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety for a few years, and there was no help for me in my little rural town of Republic, Pennsylvania. And you know the story, what doesn't break us only makes us stronger. But as a result of what I went through as a teenager, that just fueled my passion to become a nurse, then a nurse practitioner, then a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and go on to get my PhD so I could develop and test cognitive behavior therapy-based interventions to improve mental health in children, teens, and college-age youth. Wow, what a story. I mean, that's really helpful in understanding how that event, that sneeze, essentially changed your life. And you reacted in a way that I think a lot of us wish we would react in, in terms of like finding a way to channel that energy into something that's quite positive. I'm curious, you work with a lot of clinicians, and one of the things that I've always found interesting is that a long time ago, clinicians, surgeons famously, would have these bloody scrubs, and it's kind of a mark of pride even, of like, oh, you know, this, this is how I do surgery, I, I'm bloody, this is just who I am. And now the opposite is true, right? Like you don't want a surgeon that's carrying infections from person A to person B, and everyone knows this. Now, similarly, there's almost a bravado around sleeplessness, sort of like, oh, I'm on my 36th hour, oh, I'm on my seventh cup of coffee, and I'm just going to pull an all-nighter, you know, at every stage, learning stage or professional stage. Uh, There's not a lot of pride in like, yeah, I got my eight hours last night, or I got my full non-REM and REM sleep. Do you see that in any particular field shifting or changing to where it's not a source of pride? It's, It's not a good thing if you're not sleeping well, as one of the many pillars of good health. But that one in particular strikes me because there's such a, an egoism around it. And so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I don't see that as much in our younger people. I work with residents at Ohio State, just like nurses, pharmacists. But the younger people seem to really want to establish more synergy between work and home. Because if you take a look at the population health of nurses, physicians, other healthcare clinicians, it's not good. We often take great care of everybody else and we don't prioritize our own care. Now, I have the privilege of serving on the National Academy of Medicines Action Collaborative on Clinician Well-Being and Resilience. So there's about 60 of us all throughout the United States that are working on evidence-based solutions to decrease the high percentage of burnout, depression, suicide that we're seeing in clinicians. And I think a real important point here, the C-suite in every healthcare system across the country 
must get in tune to fixing system issues that we know lead to burnout and depression because that is compromising the quality and safety of care. When our clinicians are burnout and depressed, they can't engage. There's interference with concentration and functioning. In fact, I have a hot study coming out on May 1st in the American Journal of Critical Care. It was a national study with critical care nurses that once again show the high rates of burnout, depression, and poor physical and mental health predicts the number of medical errors that people make. So it's a healthcare quality and safety issue not to create wellness cultures, fix system issues, and take what we know works, evidence-based interventions, and get them implemented in the real world sooner than 17 or 20 years. Yeah, one of the things that's kind of ironic about that is that I feel like we take these steps in healthcare to try to prevent errors and improve quality. And one of the big steps was the electronic medical record. And I mean, almost every patient has had this exact experience. I mean, to the T, where your clinician is looking at the laptop and kind of just vaguely talking to you, but not really talking to you. And then about eight minutes later, they leave. And seven and a half of those minutes were spent with eyes on the laptop. 30 seconds were eyes on the patient. And that leaves everyone feeling like their cup is empty because you don't feel like you had any sort of emotional connection. The physician or the clinician feels like they didn't get to be a human because uh, they didn't. Um, and the patient feels like they weren't listened to. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on on that. You know, do you feel like, like you mentioned, you know, the word burnout and there's this phrase I was introduced to recently called moral injury, and it kind of gets to this idea that it's a systems issue and it's everything you're saying. And one big part of that system is a laptop, right? And so what's your sense on how do we remove the screen from these environments where the screen isn't actually making anyone feel better or safer? It's actually making everything worse. Yeah, I do think we must make changes in that EHR. And the other thing is, I mean, think about it. Most clinicians have come into their professions because they love being with and caring for people. And now only about 25% of the time, clinicians are able to interface with people. So it's robbed the joy out of that care reason that people came into the profession. So it gets back to these system issues. Providers who are tasked with doing things not up to their level of scope of practice. So we gotta fix that too. So doing things that could be attributed to somebody else on the team, to give clinicians more time to spend caring for their patients. It's, you know, paradigm shifts, Rishi, take decades to happen, right? And I hate to say it, but 
you know, I've got a button and in fact, I should send it to you. It says, because we've always done it that way, but I have a slash through it because we got to stop this. I mean, I've been pounding the evidence-based practice drum since the late 1990s. Um, I got a huge multi-million dollar gift from the Helene Fold Trust out of New York City to start the full National Institute for Evidence-Based Practice. And our team works with healthcare systems all throughout the world on how to improve quality and safety of care through evidence-based practice. I will tell you, most people probably wouldn't sleep tonight if they know what I've seen over the last five to 10 years in working with many healthcare systems. So I'm an optimist. So I'm gonna keep banging the drum. Although I so hope by the time I reach this age, evidence-based practice would be in the DNA of every practicing clinician so I could stop doing all these workshops and keynotes and presentations. But I tell you, if I'm blessed enough to live to be 100, I'll still be out banging the drum. Well, Bern, I had a lot more with this interview that I, that I wanted to share with you and extend this out, but I have a pretty long list of things I have to do now. I have to eat five fruits and vegetables. I gotta take a nap. I have to walk my dog and I have to brush my teeth. And so uh, with all that in mind, I was hoping you could leave us with one piece of advice, you know, for new clinicians that are up and coming and starting out in this kind of what I would call fairly new way of thinking of wellness side by side with sickness. And quite frankly, a wellness should supersede sickness in the sense that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And given that, we should be focused much more on wellness. What are some thoughts or ideas you might share with them on that front? I just want to leave by telling people, find your reason. Find your why. I didn't have a mom to see me graduate from high school, college, go on to have my three beautiful daughters. And when I get up in the morning, if I don't feel like doing my, and I have an elliptical right next to my desk, Richie, so that I can cut my Zoom meetings and jump on that elliptical and get my 30 minutes in a day. But my why, is my family. Because even if I don't do it for myself, do it for the people who love you, who want you to be around for a really long time. It is not selfish to take good self-care. It's an absolute necessity because we cannot keep pouring from an empty cup. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that that's a good point to kind of close on is the idea of, you know, filling your cup and whatever that means. And everyone has a different and very unique way of doing that. So Vern, I sincerely appreciate you and your reminder for me to take my vitamin G, my gratitude. I can't thank you enough for being part of the uh, program today. I was delighted. Stay well. 
And on that note, I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>